Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We wish you and your loved ones well in your efforts to discuss or avoid politics at the table tonight. And speaking of potentially awkward conversations. Yeah, this week on the show, we're going to revisit a conversation from earlier this year with San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. It wasn't awkward for us, but Jenkins was a controversial appointment to the city's top prosecutor job, an appointment made after voters recalled her predecessor, Chase Boudin, in June. And she's had a tumultuous few months, Scott. Since we sat down with her, there was a couple of sort of dramatic little flaps, uh, including revelations that she had been paid more than $100,000 by a nonprofit connected to the recall campaign after presenting herself for as months a as a volunteer. They actually, you know, this organization shared a an address with the recall. So it was pretty uh, looped up together. Um, she claimed she was doing legitimate policy work. Right. But, yeah. And, you know, that may be true. But I think there was still a sense of a lot of Bad folks luck. that, you know, yeah. she hadn't been fully transparent. Um, there was also right before the election revelations uh, first reported in Mission Local that she had actually sent files, including a rap sheet um, about Troy McAllister. This was a case with a, a man who ran down some people and killed them. Um, that really was used by recall supporters to kind of drum up support for the recall. She actually sent those files before she resigned from the DA's office to a personal email account from another prosecutor who resigned with her. Uh, She and Don Dubain are both back in the office now because she got appointed and she brought him in. Um, And then there's been some pushback on some of her policy changes, including saying that she will try some juveniles as adults um, and potentially go after, you know, fentanyl Fentanyl dealers dealers and others for murder charges. So... Yeah. None of that seemed to matter, though. And none of that seemed to matter. I mean, she uh, did get elected uh, in, uh, in in November uh, pretty handily. I mean, with uh, ranked choice voting, I think she got like about, what, 54, 55 percent of the vote. Roughly the same, actually, breakdown as we saw in the recall of Chesa right. Boudin. So I think people, you know, certainly had an opportunity to weigh that uh, before they went and uh, cast their ballots. But it does... It casts a bit of a shadow, I'd say, over her and uh, something she needs to overcome now that she has the job. Yeah. And I believe that uh, a ballot measure that passed that moved citywide elections uh, a year you know, to presidential years gives her uh, two years Longer before runway. she's going to have to run again. Also gives progressive two years to find a candidate. So we'll see kind of how things uh, come out of that. Yeah. Well, we recorded our conversation with Jenkins back in July. It was her first week in office. And we started by asking about her family. Yeah, so I grew up across the bay over in Union City, Fremont area. My parents met when they were in college here in the East, uh, in the Bay Area as well. Um, and my dad 
you know, who was here on student visa from El Salvador, ended up leaving shortly after he finished school here in the United States. And so I was raised uh, by a single mother um, my entire life uh, with the support, of course, of of my extended family, my grandmother especially. Um, And yeah, spent my whole childhood in the Bay Area and ended up going to UC Berkeley where I ran track, which most people always wonder what, what event, and I ran the 400-meter hurdles. Yeah, nice. So did you keep in touch with your dad growing up? I did not. I okay. actually met my dad when I was 21 years old. Oh, wow. Mm. What was that like? Yeah. Um, you know, it's something that I had always wanted. Yeah, I'd always wondered who he was and, and, and what his life was like and whether I had siblings uh, my, my whole life. So it was a big deal to meet him, and, and we are now actually very close. It oh, took some great. time. To develop that relationship, but um, he's now involved with with his grandkids uh, when he can see them when he can travel here. Oh, that's great! So you grew up in Union City. Um, mm-hmm. Your mom, I believe, is black. Um, yes. And you've talked in the past about having family members who uh, experienced police brutality or discrimination. Can you talk about that and just generally like what what your sort of perception of law enforcement was like growing up? Yeah, so I grew up um, listening to my grandmother talk about one of her older brothers. Uh, she was uh, one of 11 children born in, in East Texas, and at a time when, of course, the South was segregated. And I only had, she only had two brothers that I never got to meet, one of whom she always talked about having died in police custody and how the police had given one excuse for his death, um, but that the family always believed that he had been killed um, while he was in their custody. And so, um, you know, I grew up like most young black kids questioning, uh, you know, law enforcement and and not trusting them, not liking the police, uh, and watching other family members be, you know, what we considered, you know, racially profiled. Oh, you fit the description. So now we get to stop and search you. Um, so it was not law enforcement was never something that I saw myself going into, certainly. And when you were growing up, did you watch like, you know, true crime shows or, <laughs> you know, law and order like those kind of like how did you get from, you know, what you just described, which is a attitude about the police to actually, you know, eventually it wasn't right away, but eventually right. going you're, in you're that skipping direction. Ahead, you're I, skipping ahead, Scott. Well, I'm still watching TV. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, I, I remember loving two shows that came on on Thursday night. One was Ben Mat- Matlock. It came on Thursday at eight and in the heat of the night, which came on uh, Thursday at nine. And so, um, again, I that's what sparked my interest watching Matlock and wanting to be a lawyer. But I never really associated that with any type of law Um, and, you know, not really having close contact with any lawyers. I I just never, you know, sort of thought about being a criminal lawyer or or anything else. I just knew I wanted to be in a courtroom arguing with people. (laughs) Well, we mentioned you went to Cal. You majored in poli-sci and African-American studies. You ran track. Um, And then you ended up going to law school. What drove that decision and what kind of law? I mean, I know you ended up in corporate law, but was that the intention? No, it was not the intention. Uh, but when you're, you know, raised by a single mother who you've watched struggle um, most of your life, who's had to work two jobs at times, um, you know, sometimes the, the the money attracts you to certain things. And when you go to a top 10 law school, it makes it very easy to walk in the door of a corporate law firm. And so I think that's what sort of channeled me in that direction, especially because I didn't have a, a certain type of law that I was committed to practicing. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot while I was in corporate law. You you learn how to be a, a very um, efficient and 
And good lawyer, you have to be perfect because that's what your corporate clients require of you. And so it was a great training ground ultimately, but just not uh, where my passion lied at that time. Did that create a conflict at all for you? I think you did some work on behalf of corporations, maybe a pharmaceutical industry and Toyota uh, in liability issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a far cry from what you're doing now. I mean, did did you feel, you know, have any mixed feelings? Yeah, Yeah, conflicted about it. Oh, yeah. It's tough. You know, when you're in products liability work, you have individual plaintiffs and so who have suffered some type of some type of loss or injury. And so there are times when it's very, very difficult to, you know, stay focused on on your client's interest, even even sometimes when you question, you know, um, the circumstance of the case. But at the end of the day, I did feel like our clients always wanted to be fair in in the way that the case is played out. Um, As long as you won. (laughs) Or settled. Or there's, settled. A lot of, there's, there's a lot of settlement. Yeah, there's a lot of settlements. In all law, really. No so. one to fold them. <laughs> so, Brooke, um, you're a mom now, but I'm curious. Tell us about your husband. How, when did you guys meet? How did you guys meet? We met in the third grade. Oh, wow. That, we skipped ahead right yeah. past that. Uh, so, so we met in the third grade. We went to elementary school together. And uh, we, you know... I ended up um, branching off and going to school elsewhere after sixth grade, and and we kept in contact a little bit um, after that because I knew where he went to high school, but um, we hadn't seen each other since, I think, senior year of high school until... uh, we reunited in at almost 30 years old and would have never predicted that we would have ended up married when we were kids. But here we are. Wow. That's sweet. You talked uh, very openly and very movingly uh, at uh, both your swearing in and your announcement uh, about your firstborn child uh, who was named Justice, uh, who died very young of, you said, natural causes. Uh, how did you process that as a, as a young mom? Um, it was very difficult, to be honest. Um, it's not something you can ever prepare yourself for. Uh, you know, you think as a woman, once you get past sort of the first trimester or that first 12 weeks that, you know, it's smooth sailing and, and your baby's just going to arrive here and you're you're going to be wheeled out of the hospital holding that child. And so um, to have to leave the hospital without him was the hardest thing I've ever done. And to be honest, at times, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know what my next steps were. I didn't know what my purpose was going to be. Um, and it took some time to to recover and, and, and get to a place where I could really pursue what that purpose was going to be. And you have a daughter now, right? Yes. And so now I have a, a six-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So you're in it. Yes. <laughs> my hands are full completely right now. <laughs> How has this new job sort of changed their lives and, you know, your mom's, who is probably doing more childcare? Yeah, so it's a big difference. Uh, My son in particular, because of the pandemic, had been very accustomed to having me at home more. Mm -hmm. And so now he repeatedly is saying, mommy goes to work, um, which is is new for him to to have me out of the house all day. Um, My daughter, uh, the biggest adjustment for her, I think, is the security detail that I have. And so the other morning she says, but mommy, I don't want to ride with your security. And so uh, I had to tell her, well, you know what, it's probably a good thing because that means I get to sit in the back and just talk to you right. all the way, you all go. the way to camp. Um, but and mom has really, my mom has really, really stepped in, and you know she's a full time grandma, and so I wouldn't survive without her support. All right, before we take a break, we want to talk about how you came to this office, which is that you did join the DA's office in 2014, um, starting as most DAs do, prosecuting misdemeanors. What? 
drew you at that point in your life after losing your son um, to apply for that job? Yeah, I had met two black prosecutors um, in another county where in Santa Clara County where I was working at the time um, before at the time I got pregnant with Justice. And they they talked so excitedly about the work that they were doing. And I that was really what piqued my interest in it to say, wow, you know, they, they sound like they love what they're doing. And it sounds interesting. And, you know, maybe that would be something I would I would like, but I never pursued it at that time. And so ultimately, you know, when I was trying to figure out my next step and what my purpose was, um, I said, you know, that's something that would allow you to connect with people, to be a voice for people who need one, right, who are suffering some kind of pain. Because at that time, I was still really struggling with my grief. Um, and I tried out the public defender's office first, actually. and In San Francisco? In San Francisco. And I'll tell you the truth. It was a murder case. And the father of the murder victim was sitting in the courtroom the whole entire trial. And I remember just looking at him and saying to myself, I just buried my son too. And I know that pain. And I just need to be a voice for people like you. And so that's ultimately what led me to, to pursue, really pursue um, working at the DA's office. That was San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins talking with me and Marisa back in July. We'll return to our conversation after a short break. You have a minute to refill your plate. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Marisa, favorite part of Thanksgiving? This year, the fact that I'm not hosting, actually. (laughs) And that you get to eat leftover pumpkin pie for breakfast tomorrow. Is that new? I mean, no, it's just one of my favorite parts of the holiday. (laughs) Okay. I had a pretty good pumpkin pie from Costco the other day, believe it or not. But I digress. Um, They're okay, but they're not... Jenny Lago says, my mom. You know. <laughs> oh, she'll love that reference. Okay, let's get back to our conversation with San Francisco's district attorney, Brooke Jenkins. Jenkins, as you may know, was a prosecutor in the office, but she quit the job last year to help support the recall of Chesa Boudin. We asked Jenkins if she lobbied for the job. Um, no, I wouldn't say that that's, that that's fair at the time that the recall was going on. Um, what about after? Like when after, it was obvious. After, I, after it passed, I did express interest. Um, in the job, in part because um, I wanted to make sure that 
whoever took over was somebody who was truly passionate and dedicated to this work, not didn't see it as a stepping stone to something else political, um, had, you know, experience doing the work. Um, and so that that meant a lot to me. What was the interview process like? I mean, my understanding is that the mayor made pretty specific demands of all the folks you talked to about what she wanted to see done. Um, did you make promises to the mayor? And, and what? how did you present yourself? Uh, it was a very intense process, I will say that. And I think I had three interviews with her. Um, I, I would not say she made demands of me uh, during that interview, uh, but she did have a laundry list of questions um, about you know, certain topics, certain issues, um, I, I assume based on conversations she's, she had had with members of the public and what was significant to them. And so she wanted to make sure that whoever took over, it appeared to me, had a concrete understanding of the office and of what it was going to take to help get this city turned around. So you uh, now are in charge of an office that you were criticizing during the campaign in terms of its management. Um, How do you rebuild trust? There was some reporting on the first meeting that you have with staff right after you were sworn in. Sounds from those reports that it didn't go as well as maybe you'd hoped it would. Icy, I think, uh, difficult uh, conversations. But, you know, how do you how do you fix things? I think we have to become one. Um, Even before this recall, uh, you know, during my time in the office, um, things were very divided. It was there. There was a divide between who had been hired by previous administrations and who had been hired by Chesa, um, and that's something that I don't want to exist going forward. And the and that's really what I expressed in that meeting was simply, look, we all have one mission here, and it's to provide, you know, services to this community, which is legal services that are that are to ensure their safety. Right. And to make sure that we are treating those who enter into this system fairly. And, you know, what I wanted was to see that divide go away. Um, And, you know, not everybody's going to be willing to do that. And that's that's just the case. Right. We're seeing that play out. But overall, that's what I want my staff to do is to let that guard down to all become unified in our mission, because that's what the public deserves. I'm curious, though. I mean, Scott Sutter mentioned morale, and I think that this is an office that struggled with that predating Chase Boudin. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, you've talked about people needing to be patient, that one prosecutor, one DA isn't going to change crime trends overnight. And yet the construct of the recall was very much putting the problems of the city on one person's back. How much time? Why should voters give you a different sort of opportunity to prove yourself? And how much time do you think we should give? I think what I was saying was that I can't snap my fingers and make crime disappear. Right. And I and I made that clear every time that I talked about the recall that I didn't think everything was Chase's fault. I never could have put that. Maybe all a lot in. of the people who supported the recall okay. did, though. OK, well, I can't I can't speak for them, but I can only speak for what I said. And I always attempted to be fair to him that. No, he can't control natural trends in crime. But what we do serve as when we when we sit in this district attorney's position is someone who's supposed to serve as a deterrent to crime and to do our best to curtail it and to hold those who choose to commit crime accountable. And that's where I believed his policies were failing and and his management was failing. So one of the very first things you did uh, was to when you met with your staff uh, to say that you wanted to review all the plea deals in drug cases that had not yet been accepted. And I think there was some ambiguity there. Like, like, are we talking, when you're saying you're going to crack down on, on, you know, open air drug dealing, does that include possession? I mean, is this a change in tone or is it a change in policy? I mean, and how, how do you strike that balance? 
Yeah, and so I, I want to make clear that what I asked for was was open drug dealing cases where an offer had been extended and not accepted. Um, so I was not asking for cases that involve p- simple possession of drugs um, because at, we have a job to do. And, and I needed to see, and I still need to see, what exactly is the lay of the land as far as offers that were being made in these cases? And are they appropriate? Do they promote accountability? And that was simply the first category of case that I that I asked them to prioritize. I also need to do that in, seri- in serious and violent offender cases, right, to make sure that we are giving offers that are appropriate for, for that particular, each particular case. And what I know is that the data in 2021 suggested that things that were the way that these cases were being settled, the drug cases, was not promoting accountability. And so that's something that I wanted to see for myself. Um, Again, accountability is going to look like many different things depending on each individual offender's profile um, and the facts of their case. But we can no longer be minimizing the sale of particularly fentanyl as though it's a victimless crime. So how do you do that? I mean, this is not, you know, we saw the mayor roll out her 90-day campaign on the tenderloin. If you walk through there, it looks no different, honestly, than it did a few months ago. A lot of reporting, you know, noted that there were people doing drugs across from your press conference as police officers walked by. The war on drugs is considered a failure. Um, I I just, what is your approach? What will you do differently? Because so much has been tried and failed. And so much of this is about policing, not necessarily just prosecuting. Yeah. Um, And I walked by people using drugs openly on the street when I was there the other morning. Um, For me, I think it's twofold. We've got to be getting people who are struggling with substance addiction into treatment. Sometimes that means, right, if they get caught burglarizing somewhere or committing another crime, that we use that as the opportunity to, to give them the connection to recovery and, re- and require that they engage in treatment. Um, for those that are selling, I think, yeah, conditions from what I've heard from Tenderloin residents is that they've gotten worse over the last couple of years. Um, and I would attribute that to a lack of consequences for drug dealing. Um, of course, nobody's going to stop doing it, and more people will pour in San Fran- into San Francisco to do it if they don't think anybody's going to do anything about it. And so, that starts with the police, though. Correct? I mean, it in terms of arrests. I mean, if there if, and, and there was a lot of anecdotal evidence and some things caught on video that showed the right. police not really pursuing crimes in some cases that were underway. Shoplifting, you know? and I mean, we know from. Years of criminology research that policing actually, you know, somebody thinking they're going to get caught in the moment has way more to do with, you know, than whether they face a long sentence. Yeah, but but again, it's it's twofold. And it comes back to if I'm a police officer and I am going to put myself in harm's way, one, I'm going to then risk. Right. If somebody resist what I have to do to, to, to put them in handcuffs and maybe be falsely accused of use of force or or whatever may happen, knowing that the that the DA is going to simply let the person out within 24 hours, maybe give them, you know, no penalty at all, give them diversion for for, you know, selling whatever, being in possession of 100 grams of fentanyl because it doesn't matter, then they're less incentivized to do their jobs. Right. Do you think they purposely undermine Boudin? No, that that's not my interpretation of. So you don't think the jobs are done? Because we've seen this also around Prop 47, right? A lot of pushback by law enforcement saying, if we don't think we we don't like this policy and we're not going to enforce misdemeanors because it won't result in anything. Should that really be the job of the police? I think 
all of us as players in this criminal justice system have a job to do and we should do it regardless of what of whether or not we agree or disagree with certain laws. Um, that was a part of my complaint about uh, the previous administration is, is the selectivity of which laws they chose to enforce. And so, no, as, a, as law enforcement agencies, we need to simply just do the function of our job, which is to enforce the laws of the state of California. What about police accountability? I mean, I think Chesa Boudin uh, definitely prosecuted some police officers. Uh, one was acquitted. Um, how are you going to do you think he was too aggressive in that regard? Will you change you know, your threshold for going after a police officer for one reason or another? I think the threshold should always be the law. What the law says is our threshold. Um, I don't think these cases should be political whatsoever. Um, I think the charging should be based on whether or not there is misconduct under the law. And I am committed to continuing to prosecute any type of misconduct that that is criminal. Um, should police be held to a higher standard? They should be held to the standard that the law holds them to. Um, and so that's the framework of which I have to work within is, is what the law says. And so if, if, some, if one of them performs in a way that's in violation of that law, then I have the obligation to prosecute them accordingly, just like I do anybody else on the street. They don't, nobody gets a pass based on you know, what their status or position is um, in our society. I'm curious, you know, we do not have a lot of room in our county jail. The sheriff's deputies are woefully understaffed. I've talked to folks who have concerns about the mental health treatment people are getting because of that understaffing. And a lot of what you're talking about would result in people being held longer or being put in jail maybe who wouldn't have before. How do you tackle that? Is there Uh, room, you know? So I think, one, there are certain assumptions about whether or not more people will go to jail or not. Um, But even if we if we take that assumption is true, um, it's my job to work with, you know, Sheriff Paul Miyamoto to make sure that that he, you know, that we're working together and that he has what he needs to make this system continue to function. Um, So that's, I think, you know, all the city agencies working together to make sure that we're all doing our, our jobs to the best of our ability to keep the public safe. Obviously, you're going to look at different cases in different ways than your predecessor. Uh, but like, can you be specific? Like, for example, will, will you be seeking ganging enhancements where uh, Boudin might not have? Will you be taking into account previous strikes in, in you know, an effort to get a longer sentence potentially? Um, you know, I haven't made all of my, you know, I haven't made certain policy changes yet. Um, I've tried to make it clear that I agree in large part with the spirit of many of Chase Boudin's policies, right? Mm-hmm. That um, we should not be overusing gang charges or enhancements, that it's something that has, you know, historically um, been used against people of color and that we should be much more thoughtful about the occasions where that's appropriate. Um, but what I don't want to do and what I've never believed in is the removal completely of prosecutorial discretion, right? There are going to be certain circumstances where something may be called for and we have to use the laws available to us to bring justice in that case. Um, but I always want to be thoughtful about the equity that goes on in this system, um, And so as I craft the policies going forward in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, I'm going to try to make sure that we keep that spirit of fairness and equity in the way that we go forward. One of the things your predecessor did was to create this Innocence Commission. Uh, I think one person was freed already uh, for having been wrongly convicted. Uh, and you've said you'll keep it, but like, how are you thinking of maybe changing its composition or its mission, if at all? 
um, I think the mission is very clear that it's to to help to exonerate wrongfully convicted uh, people. And that is something that I think is extremely valuable work and needs to continue. We should always be, you know, we all know, right? We, we've seen episodes on TV specials of people who have sat for decades in prison um, because certain evidence wasn't available or was ignored. And so um, that is a mission that I want to continue in partnership with those who are working on that commission to make sure that it continues. Yeah. So you obviously have a long, impressive resume, but this is a very new job for you. I'm not sure you've ever managed this many people before. Um, I'm wondering kind of how you're approaching what's ahead of you. Talk to, say, Vice President Kamala Harris about how to do this job. How are you thinking about the nuts and bolts of managing this many attorneys? Yeah. So um, one, I think it comes down to making sure that the, that the senior management staff in the DA's office has the necessary experience, right? Who ha- They have more experience than I do. Um, and so I want to surround myself with, with senior management who knows how to do this job and knows how to do it well and ethically. Um, the other thing is, yes, being willing to seek advice from from others who have been doing this much longer than me. And so um, I've already begun reaching out to uh, some of the other surrounding county DAs and, and you even, don't have a direct line beyond to that. <laughs> I don't have a direct Hot line to the vice I president. I heard the governor's having lunch with her this week. Yeah, maybe so you can, maybe put, you put can in a hit word. up well, Newsom. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody out there could put in a word for me. But, uh, but yes, it, this is going to take me, you know, consulting with other area county DAs to see, you know, how what kind of policies they have or or what management style they have so that I can develop my my own here. We have like 10 seconds left. We talked about you running track, doing uh, hurdles in college. Anything you've learned from that experience that's going to help you in this job? That you may get weary, but you keep going. That was San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. She joined the show shortly after she was appointed to the job by Mayor London Breed. Now she's won a new term as the city's top prosecutor. That's going to do it for this Thanksgiving edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer. And for more of KQED's politics coverage, sign up for the Political Breakdown newsletter. You can subscribe at kqed.org slash newsletters. I'm Marisa Lagos. Have a great Thanksgiving. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.